I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. As well as visiting untold horrors on the Ukrainian people, Vladimir Putin's regime has launched a new wave of unprecedented repression in Russia itself, instantly jailing anyone who dares raise their voice in opposition to his despotic rule. One man who knows all too well the reality of standing up to Putin is our guest this week, Vladimir Ashurkov. Vladimir is a former financier, political activist and a leading light of Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation. He was forced to flee Russia in 2014 when he was granted political asylum here in the UK. We had a fascinating conversation about the war in Ukraine, the malign influence of Russian money in the UK and his hopes for a democratic future in his homeland. Okay, uh, Vladimir, thank you very much for joining us on the CapEx podcast. Just to give our um, listeners an idea about who you are, can you tell us a bit about how you came to be in the UK and how you got into political activism um, back in Russia and Alexei Navalny's organisation, the uh, Anti-Corruption Foundation? Sure. Most of my career has been in finance and investments. Uh, My last corporate job was with Alpha Group. So my immediate boss was Mikhail Friedman, one of the oligarchs that has been living in the UK for the last few years and sanctioned by UK government. And um, in 2010, I started reading blog of a young uh, lawyer, Alexei Navalny, who was uh, conducting a lot of investigations into corruption in Russian state-controlled companies. Um, and uh, his approach really resonated to, with, with me. So I wrote to him, I said, well, I have a lot of experience in corporate governance, let me help you in my spare time. And I did that uh, for about two years. And after that, I had to leave my corporate job um, because of political affiliation with Navalny. And then in another two years, in 2014, I had to leave Russia because a criminal uh, criminal case, politically motivated, was open against me. So um, I settled in uh, London. I got uh, political asylum here. And... um, I have been uh, continuing working with Alexei Navalny and our team from London. Mm-hmm. And this is what they tried to do to you is very much a tried and tested technique of the Russian state, isn't it? I mean, I remember back in the early noughties, they did something similar with Khodorkovsky, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was, I believe, at UCOS at the time. 
they they have a history of kind of fitting people up and on these sorts of charges, don't? Law enforcement is uh, very often in Russia used as a mean of means of uh, political persecution, and uh, they don't uh, hide it. So they um, use the most bizarre accusations uh, in this respect. So, for example, I was accused of stealing money from electoral fund of Alexei Navalny, who is my friend, who is a, a, my um, you know ally, and. Uh, Navalny says nothing was stolen, um, and uh, the government says we know better, and we think that you've stolen money from Alexei Navalny. And the same goes for Navalny. He was recently um, convicted of stealing money from his own foundation, um, which uh, the, the anti-corruption foundation, the Russian um, NGO that uh, we formed in... 2011, um, basically saying you're stealing from yourself, and he got nine years um, sentence for that. So these people, they they don't hide their intention and and the fact that these cases are politically motivated. Yeah, indeed, there was, there was another case um, our listeners might have heard of of a historian who was accused of being a paedophile um, by the Russian government, which again is just utterly uh, absurd. Um, What's your impression? Obviously, things have changed quite dramatically, the kind of fascistization of Russian society since the invasion of Ukraine. What's your impression from those you know who are still in Russia about what life is like now for opposition activists there? It's it's hard. I mean, all, all the things have changed tremendously over the last two months. Um, so all the last independent uh, media outlets uh, have been closed, and journalists. Um, new legislation was adopted, which makes it illegal to talk about the ongoing tragedy in Ukraine as a war, um, and uh, in particular to oppose it. So. Many, if not most, independent journalists have left Russia for fear of persecution. And uh, in terms of just the general mood, you can get detained and given a penalty for going out on a single picket or on a protest with a poster with a blank piece of paper or with asterisks that replace letters in the slogan No to War. So... That's the level of repression that we're now um, witnessing in Russia. Yeah, I should say as well, those aren't theoretical examples. Those are real examples that you're giving of people who've actually been arrested for holding up (laughs) blank sheets of paper, uh, which would be funny if it it wasn't so tragic. Uh, What's your impression in terms of, and obviously it's difficult to gauge, we know, polling and so on, but... Do you think there is a possibility that over time the mood will start to move against Putin because of this? Because it seems from the outside at the moment if there's as though the majority of Russian public opinion still more or less supports him. You can't really gauge uh, public opinion in a situation like Russia because uh, people are afraid to to really express their opinions and uh, their feelings because of all this... Um, laws on uh, persecution and uh, fear of the state. But uh, this war, um, I think a lot of people 
uh, are um, very disillusioned with Putin's uh, actions. And uh, this war is totally unnecessary, totally unprovoked. So the political and business elite, they've seen their fortunes decimated. They've seen their lifestyles turned upside down. They cannot go to vacations in um, France and Italy. Um, and uh, uh, I don't think they're happy about that. Uh, an average Russian has seen prices skyrocket. The um, familiar foreign brands that uh, people have become used to, like McDonald's, Ikea, or Nestle, are uh, disappearing. Um, and uh, the standards of living are going down. Many foreign companies are leaving Russia. And um, uh, as a result of that, unemployment grows. And we now have a constant stream of coffins coming back to Russia uh, from the battlefields of Ukraine. So there are many reasons to be uh, appalled at what's going on, but people are, are just uh, afraid to express it publicly. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us about, you've talked before about um, corruption inside Russia, but it's also a tool of Russian foreign policy and kind of disruption overseas, not least here in the UK. And I believe you used to do a kind of kleptocrat tour of London where you'd um, show people all the mansions where various oligarchs lived. Um, and it's certainly something we've been aware of for a while, that oligarchs saw London as a bit of a playground, that people call it London grad. Uh, but do you think the war has opened people's eyes up a little bit more to to the sheer extent of that of that problem and how ingrained it has become in uh, the British establishment and British economy? Britain and uh, London are great places to be business. There, uh, London is a big international finance center. So tens of billions of dollars throw through its banks and financial institutions. It's only natural that a part of that is dirty money um, stemming from corruption in different countries. Russia is not the only country that spews out uh, dirty money that's coming to London. Uh, why Russia is different in the fact that Russia is the country that um, has malign intentions. It's, uh, it really has taken upon itself to undermine the Western political order. And for them, dirty money is one of the instruments of influence to, to do that. I mean, um, it's not the only instrument. There are assassinations. We've seen the case of Litvinenko and Skripal in the UK. There are also many other unconfirmed um, assassinations uh, connected to Russia. Um, we've seen cyber warfare. Uh, most The, the most um, sort of vivid case is meddling in the US presidential elections in 2016. Um, We've seen meddling in Middle East, obviously, supporting the regime of uh, Bashar Assad. But uh, using corrupt money for influence is another avenue of, uh, of what Russian authorities do. Now, Russia um, is, London is home to over 150,000 Russians. And uh, the vast majority of those are... Uh, decent honest people they work in finance in law 
in culture, in all different uh, um, walks of life. But uh, indeed, there are people who made their money from corruption. We see it in the mansions, we see it in the football clubs that they own. Um, and uh, that's something that British establishment has been turning a blind uh, eye towards. But, uh, and, and we, our group, um, Alexei Navalny and our team, have been advocating for personal sanctions against perpetrators of corruption and human rights abuse for years. But uh, only in the last two months we've seen really attention to the issue and an avalanche of sanctions. That was leads neatly onto my next uh, question, which is, how happy are you with the overall response of the British government? I think a lot of people criticised them in the early days of the war for maybe being a little bit slow off the mark, but now things seem to have become a bit more comprehensive. I mean, what's your, your take on what the government has done so far in this area? I wish there was a silver bullet that uh, Boris Johnson can use with his pistol to... Um, eliminate Putin and stop this war, but unfortunately there is no, you know, set of measures that would put an end of this war and to ensure that Russia changes for the better. The measures that uh, the UK has uh, undertaken, uh, economic sanctions, personal sanctions, are quite unprecedented. Uh, I wouldn't say that they are uh, inadequate. Uh, they are large it's just there's no there is no you know correct recipe on what to do in these situations and uh, you know um west the the russia's brutal aggression has kind of consolidated western countries which were drifting apart over the last uh few years the eu us UK with Brexit, tensions within NATO, but I think overall now um, the Western response has been quite coherent and uh, it's uh, coming together. Again, sanctions is are rather a medium-term instrument. It's not something that in short term will, you know, get Russian tanks out of Ukraine. Mm. Just to return briefly to the, we're talking about Russian influence in in the UK. And one of the instruments that oligarchs have used um, is so-called strategic lawsuits against public participation or SLAPs. Um, now what's, what's, the, what's going on here? I mean, how are they, how are they using this in order to kind of perpetuate the, their aims? And how, how closely linked is it to, is this just something that individual oligarchs do to protect their own interests? Or is it something that the state itself is also coordinating? That's a good question, and uh, um, I'm not sure there is a precise answer to that. So slaps is when um, a powerful and uh, well-off figure uh, sues a writer or a journalist, um, accusing him of libel, and, and Britain has quite strict libel laws, which make it hard for, especially for independent journalists or for independent authors to defend themselves in this situation, even if they eventually uh, overcome and uh, prevail, uh, just the sheer size of um, costs related to this litigation may break people. And, and, and uh, 
naturally journalist media outlets uh, they prefer to abstain and to be extra cautious uh, and not publish uh, things that in other countries would easily be published as a matter of opinion um, so that's something that has uh, got a lot uh, a lot of attention uh, uh, in particular with the lawsuit uh, of um, Roman Abramovich against Catherine Belton, um, an author of a book, uh, All the Putin's Men, or... or, or, or um, Putin's People, I Putin. think it's called. Yeah. Putin, Putin's People, yes. I've just um, ordered it, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, that um, was published, I think, uh, a year ago. And, uh, you know, it's a multi-million pound case related to a few passages in a book. Should the society allow this kind of intimidation for a, the written word? Uh, I think it's uh, something doesn't feel right about this situation. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you think that with with the war and the sanctions that the, the slaps era is now more or less over? I mean, will any British court accept a legal action from a Russian oligarch now, do you think? Slaps are not only relating to Russia. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a global phenomenon. I'm sure that there are many people in Middle East who would like coverage of events in their country or of their actions to be um, hush-hush. Uh, and uh, even, uh, you know, uh, in inside uh, Britain, I think, there are powerful people who are always willing to put their money to use uh, with the goal of silencing their critics. So I think a wide-scale change to how things work and to restricting these uh, slaps uh, have to be adopted. So uh, I don't think it's Russia-related. And with, with respect to 
Russia specifically, <clears throat> an issue that uh, I think is often, often overlooked is that how war has changed uh, the situation with uh, lawsuits involving Russian parties. So the legal profession has this concept of equality of arms. If you bring a case to a court, you have to have the same uh, legal structures in two countries. You need to be to be uh, sure that if what, whichever decision is made in favor of the plaintiff or of the defendant, it will have the equal um, equal enforceability. Now, Russia has over the last years adopted uh, legislation that puts the national um, <clears throat> law and decision of national courts above international courts and above international commitments of Russia. So that's already created asymmetry. And uh, there are many kinds of things that British judges have used to accept uh, at face value, like the testaments from somebody who is sitting in Russian jail. Now, the I've seen decisions and proce court proceedings in the UK where the a uh, British judge says, well, there is no reason to believe that, uh, that that we shouldn't take this testament at face value, even though everybody understands that Russian prison, you can coerce people to say pretty much anything there, because there are no uh, respect for prisoners' rights, there is no really rule of law. So, And that's just one example of how uh, Russian... Uh, entities, in particular related to the state, game the UK legal system. Another is um, that Russia is now not recognizing trademarks. There was a case in Russia, some company uh, was using Peppa Pig, a famous British um, symbol, image, uh, from a cartoon, and uh, the Russian company won against the rightful copper holder, the international company. So um, I, I think uh, the UK legal profession has to look really closely at how these uh, you know, disputes uh, involving Russian parties have to be viewed in UK courts. Just in terms of uh, dealing with the oligarchs, We've discussed sanctions a bit already. How much of an impact do you think that actually has on uh, the Putin regime? Because it strikes me that a lot of Western analysis is rooted in a vision of Russia from the 1990s, when the oligarchs were kind of running the show a lot more, whereas now a large part of the Putin project was to neuter their political power. I mean, we seem to be in this kind of ratchet between Western countries of who has sanctioned the most oligarchs, but does it make a material difference to Vladimir Putin's decision-making or his prosecution of this war, whether or not we impoverish um, Russian oligarchs? If the thinking is that uh, Roman Abramovich uh, under sanctions will be able to arrange a meeting with Putin and persuade him to stop the war and recall his troops, I think that's, uh, of course, naive. But I don't think that's uh, the goal of the sanctions and of uh, uh, decision makers who uh, put the sanctions in place. The goal is first to um, say, 
well, we believe you've done something bad. Um, involvement in corruption, human rights abuse, etc. The right venue to investigate these crimes is Russia. Unfortunately, Russia is not... Uh, you, we cannot get rule of law uh, and uh, fair investigations in Russia right now. Uh, also due to your actions. So just uh, stay away from our countries. Don't stick your money into our financial system. We're not saying that you're criminals, but just stay away. That's one thing. Another is uh, creating motivation. Now, if a person is sanctioned, the only way to get himself or herself unsanctioned is for Putin's regime to change, for the war to stop. So this creates a powerful motivation to um, affect that. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the Abramoviches of this world... Uh, these are creative people, these are resourceful people, they know how Russian system works, so even though he cannot pick up the phone to Putin and, you know, open his eyes to what's going on, he can uh, influence the situation in a myriad different uh, ways, and he can engineer a plot that may put an end to this. And sort of more broadly, what are your hopes? Obviously, things look very bleak now with Alexei Navalny being in in prison, uh, although he does still manage to tweet from there, which is always quite interesting. But what's your perspective on the future of kind of democratic forces in Russia? Um, how long you think that will take? How how Putin eventually exits and what might replace him? I realise there's quite a lot of questions there, but what, what's your kind of overview of the, the scene in Russia? Sure, my our, our overall strategy has been the same for uh, about 10 years. We recognise that democratic forces, uh, including us, are not strong enough to uh, make a change in this situation because the our opponent is too strong. It has all the administrative levers of power, unlimited financial resources, the law enforcement. At the same time, um, we have created uh, the most organized independent political force in Russia. And the system, as it has been put in place by Putin, may seem stable, but it's really fragile. And uh, it's making a lot of people unhappy, as we talked earlier in the program. Um, this eventually... Uh, will lead to a political crisis where <coughs> we believe that as the most organized political force will will have a say and will have a seat at sort of the virtual table of how Russia will be governed at the next stage of its development will be decided. And, uh, you know, Russia um, is part of European civilization. It belongs to Europe... Um, historically, culturally, religiously. I mean, any Russian on the streets of any Russian city would name a German writer, a French composer, uh, and uh, a, a British uh, soccer player. This, you cannot, they, they wouldn't be able to, to name a Chinese composer, athlete, or a writer. So, um, I think it's just only a matter of time until... Russia resumes its uh, path towards, you know, 
being a normal country and being part of European civilization. And are you able to put any kind of, I realise it's a tricky question, but are you able to put any kind of time frame on that? And what, what do you make of these reports of possible kind of disgruntled generals and FSB directors and so on trying to unseat Putin? It always strikes me as it's rather wishful thinking. There were over, there were dozens assassination attempts on Hitler in his rule that was just, I believe, 12 years. Um, Putin has ruled for 22 years. Um, so something like that is possible. But if we learn about something like this, uh, it means that it already failed. Um, so uh, I, it's very difficult to get into minds of uh, these people. Um, and indeed, Putin is aware of this threat. And we've seen um, bizarre pictures of him sitting five meters away from his um, counterparty with whom he speaks, uh, you know, across a long table. So he's careful. People are scared around him. But of course, something like that is possible. And I, I think if Putin um, disappears tomorrow, anybody who comes in, in his place... Uh, would not enjoy this power and authority that Putin has now because he has been the architect of uh, creating this system of corruption and um, totalitarianism that we envision now. So anybody who comes in his place would have to account for interests of the business uh, people, the average Russian which has seen uh, uh, his uh, standard of living um, stagnating or going down. And this will be the beginning of political liberalization. Mm -hmm. And just to, just to finish off, I mean, from our point of view here in the UK, obviously we're not an enormous country, we're not the United States, we can't have probably send tens of billions to support Ukraine. But do you think there's anything more that our government isn't doing, either to support Ukraine or to sanction Russia, that would hasten the end of this war and hasten a transition of power in Russia? Again, it's, uh, it's not an easy question. There are different... Let's, uh, let's not talk about UK now, but let's take the issue of energy embargo which is a hot topic uh, in the EU. On one hand, you want to deny Putin the billions of dollars that Europe pays for oil and gas. At the same time, if you do this abruptly, the prices for heating, for diesel, for everything that we consume every day would uh, go up. And inevitably, there will be a political backlash against these actions which may lead to um, politicians having to decrease support for Ukraine because electorate becomes tired of it. So it's a very delicate balance. And uh, I, I don't want to um, uh, make suggestions um, to British government. I, I think it has been a tremendous uh, support for Ukraine. One thing that is uh, glaringly clear is the refugee policy. 
since the start of the war, over 4 million people have crossed the borders of Ukraine into Europe. Just in Poland, I, I believe there are 1.5 million people, uh, million Ukrainians who are now um, temporary, uh, temporarily living there. And they have all been accommodated, they are being fed, children are getting education. Now, Britain gets just a trickle of uh, Ukrainians. It's very hard for Ukrainians to get visa, there are delays, etc. Sensible programs like homes for Ukrainians have been put in place. But from almost everybody um, whom I know who would like to host uh, Ukrainian refugees, it's, they have been um, they have been facing delays and uh, uh, it's, it's uh, not easy. So that's that's uh, that's the situation. I think that's one area where UK could do more. Yeah, that's certainly my experience with um, Ukrainian friends of mine, one of whom has just arrived in the UK after waiting for six weeks for her visa. So that gives you some idea. Uh, Vladimir, thank you so much for joining us. It was a hugely enlightening and interesting conversation. Uh, thank you all at home as, as ever uh, for listening. Do tune in next week on the CapEx podcast where we'll have one of our regular topical discussions and uh, I'll be bringing you more news of that in the coming week. 